Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. Last week, we were looking at verses 13 through 16, and if you remember, we were doing part one of this passage. So today, we will finish part two, and then there will be a part five and a seven. I'm just seeing who's awake this morning. Just part two. Don't worry. First Peter chapter one, it's going to be verses 13 through 16, and as we revisit the, this passage that we began to look at list last week, we're going to zoom out, as it were, to get a better picture of what's going on here. Last week, we were really just focused on verse 13, as we were talking about preparing our minds for action and setting our hope on future grace. But today, we will look at the fuller picture of the four verses in this passage, part of why I titled this series, Faithful Sojourners, is because it contains a lot of instruction for different parts of our life. In chapter one, we will see as we go on, it serves as a launching point or a basis for all of the instruction and exhortation and commands that Peter writes in this letter. It's almost an introduction to all of those themes, and uh, or as your stand firm guys will recognize, a prolegomena. I know you all love that word a lot. Uh, just really is an introduction, essentially, focusing on what needs to transpire in the Christian life, regardless of the context that you find yourself in, regardless of what society is doing, regardless of the wind and the waves of life. So today we're going to look at three basic ways to be a faithful sojourner. The rest of 1 Peter is going to be a lot more specific in dealing with more situational um, instruction and here's what to do in your marriage and here's what to do uh, with between the slaves and the slave owner relationship which uh, we don't necessarily have that today but he looks at a bunch of different contexts and gives very direct instruction throughout the rest of the letter but today we're going to see in 13 through 16 that this is a very general way of saying what he's going to say for the rest of the five chapters that we are going to be dealing with. So it's very important then for us to grasp these three uh, basic ways of being a faithful sojourner because the rest of our time in First Peter will be essentially fleshing that out and seeing what that looks like. 
So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word. The title of our sermon is just Prepare Your Mind for Action. It's just part two, and we're at 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. This is the word of the living God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we have sung your praises. We have sung worship unto your name, your great glorious name. We pray that it was received in heaven and we were a part of the song that's always being sung there. And now, Lord, we confess that we need to learn and we need to hear from you. And we know that you speak directly to us through your word. So I pray that you would use me despite my many inadequacies, despite my inability to really grasp the infiniteness of your word and speak of holiness. I mean, who can talk about being holy? It's almost absurd that I would attempt to preach this this morning, Lord. So I need your help. And we all need your help to understand and to see and to apply. We pray that you would do that among us this morning for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Three basic ways to be a faithful sojourner. As you look at your bulletin, we have three, the three major points to go through today. Number one, we won't spend a lot of time on since we spent almost all of last time we were together expounding on verse 13, but we do want to kind of revisit this to refresh our memories for the sake of what we're talking about today. So our first point the first basic way to be a faithful sojourner is found in verse 13. Set your hope and prepare your mind. Set your hope and prepare your mind. This was, again, the main focus of our time last week. We dealt with the importance of the mind in setting our hope on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have a future eschatological hope that Christ will return. When he returns, we will receive the consummation of our salvation. So we stand in the grace of God, by the grace of God, right now, here today. But there is also another sense in which we don't even know the half of it yet, if you know what I mean by that expression. We don't even get... A, we don't even have an inkling of an idea of the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. So there is an already and not yet nature of this grace that we have, and that's why he says the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation 
of Christ. So it is not as though, if you are in Christ this morning, it is not as though you are waiting until that day to finally be saved. You are already saved. You are already marked by the Holy Spirit that is within you. And then on the last day, whether you pass over into glory or Christ returns first, then you will come to know the fullness of your salvation. You will come to know the fullness of the grace shown to you in Christ. In knowing that we have this hope then, Peter tells us to look beyond the situations that we face, whether it be storms or sunshine, victories or hardships, sickness or health, rich or poor. Boy, that sure sounds a lot like marriage vows, doesn't it? Almost as though we are known as the bride of Christ. Our hope is beyond this Life. So I want to say as an aside, in speaking of joy in the midst of suffering, we, we are not to assume that the Christian life is one of defeat. We are not defeatists. We stand in victory because Christ has already won. So the point in saying that no matter what's going on around you, you have a future hope to look to, is not to say, be miserable now, and then eventually, Christ is going to make it worth it for you. No. It's to set your mind on Christ's victory now, because you are already experiencing that victory. You know how? That in the midst of storms, you're not wiped away. They don't take you out. The man who built his house on the rock did the rock keep the storm from coming? No. The rain fell. The wind blew. A storm surged against the house. The point was that the house did not move because it was built on solid rock of Christ. And such is the Christian life in this lifetime. You are not to assume that you walk around with this defeated mentality and I'm just so sad and mopey and I know one day God's going to make me happy, but for now I'm just miserable. No, it's set your hope on the next life and understand that you have it right now. You have hope right now. And God will preserve you till the end, even in the midst of the storm, even as the storm rages that you can have that peace and joy here right now. We set our hope on this future reality, not passively. It doesn't just happen accidentally, but we do it by girding up the loins of our mind, by preparing our mind for action, as he says in the ESV. MacArthur points it out in a really helpful way, that this girding up of the loins or preparing your mind for action is like tying up all of the loose ends in your mind. Tying up all of the loose ends in your mind. That we are taking every thought captive to obey Christ and be sober-minded. Meaning that we are alert and awake to the things of God. Not dull, not numb. And these are necessary steps that we must take if we ever want to live out verses 14, 15, and 16. 
That is to say that we cannot live lives of holiness if our thought life is not holy. If the things that we think upon are not holy, we will never live a holy lifestyle. As we prepare our minds for action, we are taking intentional, thoughtful, purposeful steps in our thinking to be more holy. If I think and think and think, and bear with me, I know this is silly, but if I think and think about how nice it would be to have a scoop of ice cream after church, and I'm just thinking about that all morning long, what are the odds that when I leave this place, I'm going to go get a scoop of ice cream? My wife will tell you 100%. But why? It's because I've been fixated on it. My thoughts have been on this. I know that is silly, but this is exactly how sin works in our life. And we are fooling ourselves if we don't think that sin starts in the brain. Sin sinks its claws into our thought life long before it ever works its way out in action. In other words, you've sinned in your mind and in your heart long before you ever actually did something sinful. How do you know that? Well, Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, you have, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What? I can have anger in my mind and in my heart, and I can never murder someone. I can have anger in my mind and in my heart towards someone and treat them with perfect courtesy, can't I? I can still treat them, I might be passive-aggressive from time to time, but people might never know the anger that is swelling and burning within my brain and in my heart, but Jesus is calling that sin. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. Well, I've never cheated on you, but you can be very adulterous and never go to that person's house, never make that phone call. You can be very adulterous in your mind and in your heart. This is where Christ is showing us the true nature of the law, that it's all about your heart and your thoughts and your desires. Many very friendly, kind-hearted, sweet-spirited, meek and mild people can have a thought life that is blazing hot with wickedness. You may never suspect it. You may never see it. But God does. For this reason, we are to gird up the loins of our mind. Reel in your thoughts. Pull in those loose ends. Practice right judgment. I want to remind us all again that this indicates intentionality, purpose, action, that you are actively involved in what's going on. You're not asleep at the wheel. Show of hands, has anyone ever been on the loop? driving, 
And before you knew it, you were further along than you were the last time you remember. It's like you blacked out while you were driving. Anyone? Well, we're not being honest before the Lord this morning. I'm sure all the hands would go up because we've all done that. Don't worry, I'm not an officer. We've all done that, haven't we? We were almost literally asleep at the wheel. But we can't do that in the Christian life. Church, we are the church militant. We are always in a time of war. There is always a war raging around us and sometimes within us trying to get us to fall away from Christ, to get us to stop thinking holy thoughts, to stop thinking in a loving way, to stop reading your Bible, to stop hitting your knees in prayer. We are ever at war. And this is what is meant here with being sober-minded, is to be active, alert, sharp, focused. A drunk person is numb, slow, staggering, hazy in their mind, even drowsy. A person who is not sober-minded is numb to God, slow to respond, cloudy in their thinking, drowsy towards the things of God. Oh, you're talking about the crucifixion again. Wow, that's great. Oh, yeah, God, the throne room, yeah, 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 holy, 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 yeah, that's cool. That is what is being numb to the things of God. That we can go to the Bible and read these great things like this great inheritance that we have being kept in heaven for us. And it does nothing. It doesn't even move the needle of our hearts. That is numbness. That is being dull to the things of God. And we are being told to be sober-minded. In other words, active and alert. And we see these things and they do something to us. We all have thought wars within ourselves. We have passions that rage that are contrary to God's word. And it is for this reason that we must be actively engaging the mind, bringing those thoughts captive to make them obey Christ. This is not a passive exercise. It does not happen by accident. You don't just wake up one day and it happens. Trust me. You don't just, just the same way that you don't wake up one day and you're fit and skinny. I've tried really hard. It doesn't happen that way. It takes real intentional effort, doesn't it? Real planning, real thinking, real active, intentional movement. And this is going to be further indicated by the rest of our passage. Point number two, do not be conformed to your old life. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient children, in these three words, we really do learn so much. This is how we are to live in this world, as obedient children. Remember, these early Christians that Peter is writing to are being grieved by various trials. They are facing various forms of persecution. All of this is going on around them, but regardless of that, they are to be obedient children. Peter does not write, feel sorry for yourselves, stay home, stay safe, stay inside. 
doesn't say any of those things, does he? He says your responsibility in the middle of your trials, in the middle of your persecution, is to be obedient children. Live as obedient children. Yes, indeed, we are called to obedience. Absolutely. We must obey that which Scripture tells us. We are to do this because we are his children. We are not obeying to become his children. We obey because we are. This is how I show you the, the roots of what is taking place in my heart is living out a life of obedience as a child of God. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ephesians 5.1, I love this. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In being the children of God, we must no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In the new birth, God gives you a new heart that is no longer hardened to the things of God. He writes his laws upon your heart. You are then to stop living how you used to live and live in this new way that God has started within you. We are a new creation. In Christ, you are a new creation. So we must not go back to the old ways. How do I know I'm saved? I'm a new creation. The old things are passed away. The new has come. We ought to all be able to answer that way. How do you know that you're a Christian? Because I am a new creation. Because the old has passed away. And the new has come. Peter here is writing two different commands. One, to not be conformed. And two, to be holy. There's a negative command of what not to do. And then a second positive command of what you are to do. The word passions here can simply mean desires. It isn't necessarily carrying a positive or negative sense in the word, except for the fact that we see your former ignorance, the passions of your former ignorance. Would any of us in here read that and think that the passions of your former ignorance had anything good to offer? Well, I really wasn't that bad of a person, you know, and it was pretty good. I had my hang-ups, I had my slip-ups, but I was pretty good. But here, Peter writes it that they are passions of former ignorance. There was nothing good in my former passions. And to be conformed is to continue to pattern your life after those passions. It is the idea of being shaped and molded like a piece of clay. Shaped and molded 
by your former passions. This is very important because you need to understand that no great fall happens overnight. No great sin is committed overnight. It is a slow, gradual conforming to your former passions. It is a slow eroding away. There are trees, there's a particular tree disease, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but a parasite goes inside of this tree and kills this tree from the inside out. And from the outside, you will look at this tree and it looks healthy, it looks fine until the day when it comes tumbling down. Because over the course of time, this parasite, this fungus has been eating away at the inside of this tree. If that's not a lesson of how sin works in our life, I don't know what is. But for, further, he's saying that you were at one time ignorant, meaning you're not anymore. You were at one time ignorant about the things of God. You didn't know. You did not know him. Now you do. So you are held accountable to that. Mold and rot and decay take time to finally cause real destruction. And this is what happens in our life. Sinfulness marinates and it steeps in our minds. And over time, we are more and more conformed to the image of our old selves. I want to give you a real-life lesson from Ravi Zacharias. Many of you have heard that name. Some of you aren't familiar with him, but he was a very well-known Christian apologist. And when he died, a lot of people gave him a lot of honor. It was a sad day, and it was also a joyous day, because we thought surely he had gone on to be with the Lord. He had a worldwide ministry. He touched a lot of people's lives over decades. He was in his 70s when he passed. I say was because he passed away in May of last year. And after his death, many allegations of sexual misconduct came to the forefront. Absolutely tragic. At first, no one believed it, myself included. Ravi Zechariah, no way. There's no way that guy was engaging because he was so kind and so mild-mannered and so even-tempered. There's just no way he's the last person in the world who you would ever guess would do that. The ministry that he had founded conducted a third-party investigation into the matter to see if the allegations were true, and they were. He had for years been committing adultery with many different women, even into the last year of his life on earth. Over 70 years old, folks. Stories came out that he would tell them things like, oh, poor me, I worked so hard in the ministry. You are my reward. I deserve this. That is so wicked. I deserve to have you as a reward. But you know what? That sin did not start overnight. 
It began long before he ever engaged. He was conforming himself to the passions of his former ignorance because he did not gird up the loins of his mind. He wasn't sober-minded. He wasn't walking in holiness. I hear that story, and it terrifies me to my core because sinfulness is so deceitful. If any of us in here for a moment think, I don't struggle with that, I'm good, be careful lest you fall. It is a humble and contrite heart before the Lord, asking to search me and know me. Search me and see if there be any grievous way within me. Start so small. It begins in your mind with your thoughts. Then maybe I'll skip church this Sunday. I could use a break. I've been working really hard. I've been doing all of these things. I, I could really use a break. Maybe I'll just not read my Bible this morning. I've been studying really hard. I've been reading so much. Maybe I just won't pray. You know, I've been doing a lot of prayer lately. Little by little and slowly but surely, you're changing. And not for the good, but conforming yourself to the former ignorance when you didn't know God. You didn't go to church before because you didn't know God. You didn't read your Bible before Christ because you didn't know God. You didn't pray because you didn't know God. You didn't invest yourself in meaningful Christian community because you didn't know God. But now, now you know God. Now you know Him. You know of this glorious inheritance awaiting us in the next life. Now you know of the majesty of the King. Now you've read Isaiah 6 that speaks of the holiness of God and how majestic and high and lifted up He is. You've had the Holy Spirit poured into your heart. You know better. This is your former ignorance. It's not who you are anymore, or is it? Have you truly been transformed? Have you truly been reborn by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Have you truly trusted Christ and Christ alone for salvation? Has the Lord began a good work in you that will be seen through till the end? You are now accountable for what you know. So do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Do not pattern your life after the world. Do not be shaped and molded by the sin that resides within you. Instead, walk in holiness. This is lastly, number three, verses 15 and 16. Don't be conformed to your old life, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We saw the negative command of don't. Now here's the positive command of do. It's important to see that Peter is writing as he who called you in the imperative to be holy. God called us into salvation. We learned in the opening greeting that the Father foreordains our salvation and his grace serves as the basis behind Peter's exhortation in this whole letter to stand firm in it. 
And it's the same here, but on a much smaller, more laser-focused scale. He's saying, he's reminding us that we are to walk in holiness because God himself called you. God called you into salvation. Be holy. We are not striving for holiness as a means to get to God, but because we've been brought to God. We do not strive for holiness as a means to get to God, but because we've been brought to God. Chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's going to write that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of the dark, which we can equate with the former passions of your former ignorance, and into the light, in other words, into holiness. He called you out of sin into a holy life. We do this thing in Christianity, in the church culture, where as long as I don't drink, smoke, and cuss anymore, I'm a good Christian. I tithe. I don't cuss at people like I used to, even on the loop. I am a good Christian. But you see, Christianity is not just about don't do it's also about do. It's not just don't do these things anymore. It's do these new things now. It's not just don't live in sin. It's now be holy. Walk in a manner of holiness before the Lord your God. Paul writes it this way in Titus chapter 2, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Listen to this in verse 13 or verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the don't. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Not eventually. Not when Jesus comes back. Not when I get to heaven. Not when I'm smarter. Not when I'm older. Right now. Here and now. Today self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. Once again, this is all the motivation the person who has truly tasted of God's grace needs. As Peter writes it here, because God called you. So notice then that this is not a call to be moral. It is not saying to be moral and then God will be happy with you. It doesn't say if you just do your one good deed per day, vote Republican, and try not to get too angry, then God will let you into heaven. He doesn't say that at all, does he? Instead, he says, because the holy God has made you his own, be like him and be holy. Are you kidding me? Be holy like God is holy, let's be very careful this morning that we don't read this and say, yeah, I mean, I just need to be a little bit more holy in my life. He's saying be holy like God is holy. This should make us feel our deep, profound inadequacy. That there is no way I can do that. What do you mean be holy like God is holy? Do you know the thoughts that go on in my life? Exactly. Prepare your mind for action. 
do you know the time, the ways that I get so distracted? So exactly, be sober-minded. Pull your thoughts in. Make your thoughts obey Christ and walk in holiness. To be holy would first of all certainly include not being conformed to your former ignorance. But it also refers to being set apart for or devoted unto the Lord. As Peter pointed out regarding the sanctification of the Spirit in the opening greeting, we are made holy in that we are set apart for God and we are being made holy in that we are growing in our devotion to God, to imitate God out of a love and devotion to Him as dear children who He has called out of darkness. Why do you fight sin in your life and pursue holiness? Because God saved you. Because of the grace of God. My friend, if you need more motivation than that, I don't know if you know him. Because his grace really is enough motivation for us. If we truly grasp how truly sinful we are and how truly holy he is, there's no way that we would yawn at the grace shown to us in Christ. We will be filled with gratitude, as I know many of you are. It is to imitate his thoughts, to think more like him, to act more like him, so that when people would look at us, they would say, you're just like your father. That often is said in such a negative way. You're just like your father. Why? Because we're sinful down here. But to be known as being just like your heavenly father, could there be a heavenly, a more profound compliment that we could receive in this life? Or you're just like your elder brother, Jesus Christ. Look at it from the original context. They were being persecuted and mistreated. Don't forget that. They're being persecuted. They've been grieved by various trials. They were being persecuted and mistreated, but Christ did not react harshly or hardly at all when he was beaten and mocked. Be like that, Peter writes. Do you see the example set for you in Jesus in the midst of the greatest suffering of his life? He persevered because he had resolved, not my will, but yours be done. Be like that. When Jesus said and demonstrated, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be like that. When Jesus would often go off to be alone with God in prayer, though he was God incarnate, when he served and loved his disciples, when he constantly spoke of and glorified the Father, my friends, be like that. Yes, in the midst of trials. Yes, in the midst of persecution. Yes, in the midst of your most profound suffering. Be like Jesus. Isn't it amazing that Peter is writing to encourage and exhort them who are being grieved by various trials, and part of the way that he does this is to tell them to be holy? We have great need for that. 
in today's church. The world around us does not need to see more people who are culturally relevant. People who have nice cars and a good job. The world around us needs to see Christians who live lives of holiness. They need to see people who are not conformed to their former ignorance, but who are walking in holiness. This is another reason why I've titled this series Faithful Sojourners, because we are sojourning in a foreign land, a place that is not our own as we await the new heavens and the new earth. We are in the midst of and surrounded by sinful people, but we are commanded to holiness. And you know what? God has always been this way. In Leviticus chapter 18, he says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Do you think for a moment that God has changed? Do you think that God has changed his tune? Well, I don't really care about that anymore. You know, I'm the new God. I'm the New Testament God. I don't care about those things anymore. No. God is always the same. He calls us out of sinfulness into holiness because he's holy. And I love that passage because he says, don't be like the Egyptians who you just left. And don't be like the Canaanites who live in the land to which you're going. Instead, be set apart. Be holy unto the Lord. God's chosen people have always been expected to be different than the society around them because they are holy to the Lord. And he says here, look at it, in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. He writes that we are to be right, holy in all of our conduct, not merely aspects of our conduct, not just when we are listening to worship music in the car, not just when we are at the church, but in all of our conduct. Our faith impacts all of our life, every last bit of it, our work life, our thought life, our family life, everything. Holiness is more than just being a nice moral person. Holiness is to be conformed, is not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead being conformed to Christ in all of your conduct. And I love how he says, for it is written, since it is written, I want to call your attention to this as an aside because here we see that the Bible takes the Bible seriously. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is quoting scripture as his basis for the command to be holy. Isn't that profound? So if the Bible takes the Bible seriously, how much should you and I take the Bible seriously? The writers of Scripture understood that Scripture is inerrant and infallible and authoritative. It is the authority over our life. 
As we close up today, you know, it is a very sad reality that in today's church culture, holiness has all but been abandoned. We think it's okay to live a little in the flesh from time to time, as long as the majority of our life is lived in holiness. But let's remember what Peter is saying. He doesn't simply say, be more holy than your neighbor. He said, in quoting scripture, be holy like God is holy. That should make us tremble. Be holy as God is holy. That should make us feel our inadequacies and drive us to the ground before the throne. Be holy in the midst of persecution. Be holy when my life is falling apart. Be holy when I get the bad news from the doctor. Be holy when I don't feel like it. Be holy in the morning. Be holy when I'm angry. Be holy when people have done me wrong. Who can possibly do this? Answer, no one. But you know what? We'll never do it without setting our hope on the grace that is to come. We'll never do it if we don't prepare our minds for action. We'll never do it if we are never sober-minded. Most importantly, we won't ever do it without Christ. He is the perfect example of perfect holiness in the midst of every single situation. Listen, we must apply this to our life. If you leave here today and you remember nothing else Remember Peter's words as he quotes scripture, be holy like God is holy. When you leave here today, don't leave the truths of this text in your seat. Take them with you and meditate upon them. Love them, pray them. Ask God to break your heart for your sin. Ask God to do the work necessary in your life to make you holy. Christianity is not a nice, clean, easy, casual kind of religion. It's bloody. It's sweaty. It takes work. You're going to shed tears. You're going to have to battle sin. You're going to have to have some sleepless nights. You're going to have to have some early mornings. You're going to have to lose some relationships. It's going to cost you something because it cost Christ his life. But you know what? It will all be worth it. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's stand.